Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for March 2017. I am writer topical film joke Lee Zachariah. I'm sorry, it's been a crazy month. That was the best I could do. Uh, and with me, as always, is Sophie Mayer, birthday girl, hyphen film festival casualty. Happy birthday. Happy film festival. Thank attendee. you. It was a uh, gay Christmas here in London, as we like to call it. So I feel pretty dissolute right now. But I'm very thrilled that we're going to be talking about two films about totally heteronormative straight men. Yeah, I, I got a uh, interesting email from a friend of mine saying, uh, oh, Logan was fantastic. you got to go see it. And I wasn't sure if I was actually going to go. I thought maybe I'll wait for video. But you know what happens when you have like superhero-obsessed friends who, who live in England and you host a podcast with and they're just like, ah, oh, I just want to talk about superheroes all the time. And, and so I, I read this email from, from my friend Sophie who was like, you got to go see Logan. And I was like, oh, fine, I'll go see Logan. If Sophie insists, I will see Logan. It was the way that I sort of shot the claws out of my hand and threatened your neck with them that really, <laughs> I think, drove that viewing experience. But yes, this podcast has made me superhero obsessed. All I want to do right now is look at, you know, rippling muscles in spandex, which is actually the complete opposite of Logan, I think we have to say. This is a film that starts like all the Beckett plays, all of them just mashed up into one <laughs> in a tank yep. on the Mexican border. So it's doing border politics, racism, immigration, critique of GM science, and Beckett. Plus, you know, Hugh Jackman looks really rough in it. Sorry, if, sorry, if it is Beckett, does yeah. that mean Days of Future Past was like Crap's Last Tape? Where he's like, <laughs> uh, I mean, let's, let's, let's take this through to its logical... Last Tape, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry, go on. Anyway, I don't know. Maybe it's like the thing with trolls. I There's this particular, you know, sort of cinema that we go to in Wood Green. It's, you know, you go to a public screening. There's a ton of people there and you just enjoy it with them. But I was I was blown away by Logan, um, which is very much a social documentary about Trump's America. And uh, no, I can't do it. <laughs> it's a superhero movie there but it's it's you know what i did is in my head i edited this amazing movie which is not called Lo logan it's called laura or laura as she should be because the secondary protagonist or maybe even the genuine protagonist is a young woman called laura who is logan's biological daughter although <laughs> he didn't really participate in the making of her and she and a number of other young cloned bio mutants have escaped from a lab uh, run by a very sinister rich d grant and they are trying to escape across the canadian border like all the other americans in america right now who's <laughs> saying it's a phenomenal performance and it's a phenomenal ripost to everything about women in cinema like she just rips people's heads off it's awesome she's pretty great uh, i yeah, I was, I, I, I honestly, I had to go and see this film the moment you, like, because I really wanted to know, like, you know, as, as I've gotten to understand your own tastes and, <laughs> and preferences in cinema, I thought uh, that was the, the key that made me go see it. And I am, I don't know, I find, you know, the X-Men films are so weird. I mean, this is like the third film, Wolverine film, that's named after him. Like, they just, there's no numerals, there's no, like, ascending you know, or subtitles or anything like that. It's just like, what are the different, like then if they did a fourth, it would be called James. I just find this, it's so weird because it makes them feel all like so standalone yeah. and like, no, we're hitting the reset, reset button again. 
And I, I have to admit, like, that my initial reticence to see it was with the glut of superhero movies. I'm sure I've made this point before, but uh, I do feel that there's room for every single type of superhero film. You can be ultra serious, you can have colourful and silly, and I'm fine with that, that, that range, do whatever type you like. But I, I am suspicious of the films that lean on realism, because more often than not, it translates to the 14-year-old's idea of what gritty is. And I'm thinking of Batman versus Superman's multiple gruesome murders, or a focus on the mundane. Like, I keep thinking of the Man of Steel trailer, the fact they had a close-up of pencils in a jar in the trailer. I was obsessed over that shot, because it was like, this tells us nothing other than... everything. Oh, this is the real world. And everything. Yeah, exactly. And so it ends up looking like a vague impression of a Ken Loach film, except with superpowers. And and Logan does avoid these cliches, and, and it goes to something quite genuine and heartfelt. And I, I am aware that there, I do feel there's a, a self-conscious desire to be serious, quote-unquote, but because it does it so well, I, I forgave it for that. I can't believe I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this phrase. I'm going to lose my feminist card, but it's... <laughs> It's auteur cinema, right? James Mangold, yeah. direct heavy, directed Walk the Line. He has the capacity to make, you know, it, in a way it feels quite close to Walk the Line. It almost is like a biopic of Logan, like yeah. taking that approach of telling a life story with its ellipses and its gaps and its shames. And it definitely is the first superhero, maybe even genre film, certainly the first superhero film in which one of the superheroes has dementia and needs help going to the toilet. So, mm. you know, Professor X's quote-unquote disability has always been seen allegorically in terms of thinking about the X-Men and this is one of the first films that really thinks about him as a character who's a wheelchair user, who's also aging. At one point Patrick Stewart goes in his really gravelly voice, non agenarian <laughs> And so having, you know, grown up and with these characters, like the first X-Men film is from nineteen ninety one, that feels kind of appropriate. It's a standalone story, it's kind of end stopped unless they go on with with Laura rather than James you know and I hate this idea that there's a genre film that transcends its genre I think that's a really stupid <laughs> argument because genre is powerful because it's genre and the worst thing for me about this film is its sort of addiction to the western as a metaphor and its need to kind of just throw that claim in there that it's that it's a kind of western to legitimate itself boring and and tacky it's a great superhero film because it actually thinks about consequences. That's what makes it realist. Mm. Like, if you kill a bunch of people really nastily, there are consequences. I agree. And, and I think you, you hit upon the, the thing that I like. The thing I was worried about is that it would be shots of, you know, Patrick Stewart having dementia and, it would, and that would be used uh, sort of as, as a gritty, as an excuse to be gritty. Whereas what they're actually exploring is what happens if... Yeah, we've, we've established in previous films that his brain is powerful and can do all these things. So what happens if someone with a, a brain like that gets dementia and they really do something interesting with that? They let him be funny as well. It's a mm. great... It is like... I've, I feel like James Mangold went to see Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen in the productions of uh, Waiting for Godot, an endgame that they did, and went, oh, this dark shit can be funny if you get the right actor. Yeah, And it has that kind yeah. of super bleak British 
humour, like Joe Brand's show, Getting On, set in the NHS, that is humour mm. about the fact we have bodies and that our bodies make us vulnerable to each other. And that kind of puts the violence in the film in a different perspective because you start to realise, okay, there are vulnerable bodies on one side and then these super soldier bodies on the other. And what happens when they come together, particularly in the scene at the farmhouse, which is lived in, owned by an African-American family, is probably one of the most devastating scenes in a in a genre film that I've seen. I don't think it's given quite enough time to be as devastating as it is, but it really, you suddenly start thinking about the implication of all these, you know, shoot 'em ups that you watch. Mm. And, and I think the thing of the body and what our bodies do and the idea of Logan battling himself figuratively mm. and literally, like, I don't need subtlety. I'm, I'm you know... <laughs> Subtlety's fine, but you know, just put it on front street. Like I am, I am very happy with that, and I, I thought that was beautifully handled, both aesthetically and metaphorically. And we, God, we haven't even touched on the fact that so much of the plot revolves around the fact that there are X Men comics that people are obsessed with, and that people think are real, and that don't reflect the reality, which is a whole other conversation, uh, possibly. Yeah. Uh, it really, God, this is a good film. I knew I liked it, but until we started talking about it, I don't think I realised how much. So, yeah. Yeah, that whole meta thing and then the film's own relationship to the different strands of the X-Men comics and these different realities. And, you know, as you say, each of the films and then each of the previous X-Men films, uh, sort of First Class and Days of Future Past, have been kind of resets and this mm. this possibility what this film says is there is no possibility of a reset like things have consequences once you've yeah. done them they're done you can only live with those consequences which is what feels so simplistic about quoting from shane the film as opposed to the l word character oh okay rescued my queerness <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was touch and go for a moment there i'm glad Re you pulled it back at the end really got it back in there um yeah the l word is logan <laughs> yeah um, the l word <laughs> is logan um and you know we could go into a whole thing about like the queerness of logan fighting himself and his you know the relationship with caliban this kind of queer love mm. triangle of Professor X and Logan and Caliban, played by an unrecognisable Stephen Merchant. Um, yeah, weird casting, but it works. Weird casting. And again, this kind of Englishness uh, with, with Richard E. Grant as well in this relationship. Mm. I don't know. I'm not going to theorise. Um, look, it's a shirt <laughs> about a guy with massive muscles in a vest who can stab things with his hands and his daughter, who is similarly stabby, and they go kind of Thelma and Louise. What more do you want? I want nothing more. Oh, no, there is one thing I want. There's one more thing I want. And that's a documentary about Bassam Yusuf. The, uh, how, how was that transition? Just quietly. Like, <laughs> it could, was that smooth. Seamless? Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, no, speaking of battling evil powers, um, if you're not familiar with Bassam Yusuf, and I know you are because I'm literally talking to you, but now I'm sort of doing the presentary thing. Uh, this is going terribly. But, um, yeah, Bassam Yusuf, is, he's, he was a massive, massive fan of, of John Stewart of the daily show and, and made no bones about that and was in Egypt, a place that was going through is still going through an extraordinary amount of turmoil and started his own web series where he basically did that. He mocked the politicians, he mocked the news and that was instantly popular because no one else was doing that. He got his own TV show. He was a doctor, he was a surgeon and decided to give that up to become a comedian. And the TV show was huge. And it's 
tickling the film is tickling giants which starts sort of at the beginning of this journey and during the arab spring during this regime change and what it is to be a satirist in a place where people go missing for less where journalists get arrested for less than than what he he does and I look. I'm, I I love Bassam Yusuf. I remember when you know. I think there was this reciprocal thing where um, John Stewart brought him out and had him on Daily Show a number of times, and so we sort of became aware of him. And I think he's amazing. And so this documentary, I've been hoping that someone would make one about him, and um, it's it's fascinating and heartbreaking and very very funny. Uh, and it's, it's, sorry, it's, I should just say it's not out in Australia yet. I'm hoping we get it, but it is out in the UK this month. Is that right? It's, um, being distributed by the wonderful women of Bertha Dockhouse. Um, yeah, it will be out in the UK early next month. And I think then streaming online as well, which is the pattern for most docs here. And I think, you Mm -hmm. know, internationally now it hasn't been bought by netflix which makes it quite singular in the world of documentary (laughs) but um yeah i mean i this is one of the few films where i felt it was really justified in having a fourth act like 95 minutes in i was like oh great end of story grabbing Mm. my bag to go off to whatever i was doing at flair and then it carried on. There was another. There's another half an hour, which, um, as you say, Lee addresses sort of the crunch point where Abdel Fattah el Sisi, the head of the Egyptian military, has become president of Egypt as he is now, and this is someone who, coming from an army background, is not going or doesn't seem to want to tolerate satire. It's a different climate from when Bassem Youssef started in the during the the Arab Spring, the uprising that overthrew Hosni Mubarak. And the film, you know, which one of the things I love about it is it plays really brilliantly with the form of documentary as well. I think it's the only documentary that I've seen that is successfully a satire of documentary as well. Like, it's not a mockumentary, it just plays with the convention. So about 50 minutes into the film, just this screen comes up which says directed by Hosni Mubarak, written by Hosni Mubarak, produced by Hosni Mubarak. And then at the end, it recapitulates that with Sisi. And there's this really sort of very, as you say, dark, sad, but also hopeful because of the international dimension. It's not a huge spoiler. Yusuf is now in exile in the US. <laughs> it's probably going to be banned by Donald Trump. <laughs> he certainly can't leave the US right at the moment right because he's from Egypt which is one of the countries on the banned list lest we think that only the Middle East has uh, dictators but it's a story of an an extraordinary personality in an extraordinary moment. Egypt has, you know, has a strong tradition of stage comedy. Publishers and journalists had been being arrested by Mubarak for years. And it has a really, really strong, it's one of the strongest regional film industries. So there's kind of the meeting point of people who are trained to be, to work in film and television and people who are trained in satire just came together and produced this extraordinary phenomenon as something like 80% of Egyptians watched Bassem Youssef's show when it moved to television. That's Those are mm. numbers from like the beginning of television history and they watched <laughs> it. You see them in the film sitting in squares, in cafes, in bars, watching it together. This is appointment television. Everyone is talking about it. And unfortunately, mm. as that goes on and the, the things get complicated with Morsi and then Sisi, this means that people who support 
those regimes are watching it as well. And Yusef himself becomes the focus of these these really terrifying protests. And you know, we talk a lot about like comedians and journalists being brave um, when they tell personal stories or I don't know, you know, appear in films. Mm. But the yeah. the bravery, particularly of the the young people who are working for him, women who are hijabi, women who aren't, young men who support the Brotherhood, young men who don't, you know, they're standing in this office surrounded by protesters who are surrounded by the police and army who they are making fun of. And they're like, mm. are they going to protect us? Oh my God, it's it's so stressful. And it's so amazing that Sarah Taxler, who was the documentary, spotted this phenomenon really early and was like, yes. Mm this is a great documentary subject. Everyone should just see it to understand how media works and how we can interrupt it. Absolutely. And and look, I, you know, I, I have worked on the very, very fringes of satire, probably the safest, you know, I was the fifth person in a writer's room in Australia on, you know, various shows kind of, you know, as far removed as you can get from being in a, you know, in a dangerous country at the heart of the action. And so I found it particularly fascinating because, uh, you know, I do pay a lot of attention to satire in the West, in, in cultures I am familiar with. And even watching Bassam on his daily show appearances, where he would make fun of what was happening in the Middle East and in Egypt. And I thought I had an understanding watching him do that, but then watching him not just watching clips of his show, but seeing behind the scenes and him doing those same jokes in Egypt and them having that conversation of, you know, they might bomb us tonight. Yeah, yeah that, that that's a real possibility. I mean, that's just, it, it's a perspective that we might not have had without this documentary. You know, it's one thing for him to tell the story on a panel show. It's another thing to actually be in there and see the faces of his writers and his researchers and his graphics people as they're like, do we work from home today or yeah. do we risk our lives to t make this half hour of TV? It's, it's amazing. It's going to be hard to beat for me as, as doco of the year. Yeah. And I have to say that, you know, having someone's literally having someone's life in your hands day in, day out, seems like really good training for being a satirical comedian. <laughs> you know, I think there's quite a few comedians who I would like be, you know, go to medical school, go and learn, you know, he says like he thinks of satire as being a scalpel to look at the body politic. And I don't think that's a loose metaphor because this is someone who's literally stuck scalpels in people's body. And he does have this, there is like a real surgical healing. You know, he's not just doing mm. it to, you know, make himself look good or to transgress. There's this idea that we know there's something politically wrong with Egypt. We know there's something socially wrong as there is in every country. What would happen if we use satire to try and address that? Mm. And we can be goofy and silly and we can be serious. And, you know, some of the sight gags are just amazing and the props are brilliant. And the fact that they're doing all this basically under war conditions, like this documentary is not going to get less necessary as, you know, the world spirals out of control. It's a primer for like how to do this shit. So Absolutely. see it. There's a website. Um, even if you can't get to see the film at the moment, the website Tickling Giants lists all the screenings. And it also tells you how you can book screenings. And it has a bunch of calls to action. And it also clarifies that no Hermes or unicorns were harmed in the making of the film. <laughs> I don't know what the unicorn thing is about. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm here 
um, in the glamorous Ibis Blackfriars with American filmmaker Jennifer Reeder. Hi. Hello. And you joined us to talk about... Alison Anders. And why Alison Anders? When did you first connect with her work? Okay, so when I was when I was a teenager, I was working at the kind of art house movie theater in Columbus, Ohio, which is my hometown. And uh, they played great movies. Uh, Gus Van Zandt, Almodovar. It's where I saw Sid and Nancy by Alex Cox. They were all the Merchant Ivory films, all of these kind of art house films. And um, it didn't occur to me that those were all um, really great films, but all films by men until Gas Food Lodging screened there. And I was in film school at the time, so I was making films then, but, but I... I don't know, like I couldn't, I didn't know where that would lead me to, where that trajectory was, right? And so there was something that was so profound about watching this film about women, um, about women's relationships as sort of survival strategy. And then I knew that it was directed by a woman and I kind of became obsessed with her, even to sort of being really envious of, of her, you know, naming her first, you know, child after Breakfast at Tiffany's and which was a, you know, like a favorite film of mine, and, I, and I've never met her before. Our paths have never directly crossed. But seeing, seeing Gas Food Lodging, knowing that it was directed by a woman, it was a conventional narrative. I mean, I had, in film school, I had, you know, lots of hefty doses of Maya Darren, you know, but I, I wasn't actually all that invested as a filmmaker in experiment, experimental um, forms. So, yeah, that just, that really changed everything. And I was about 20 when that film came out, so both, you know, Shade and Trudy as characters really resonated with me. And re-watching some of her films this past week, I realized so many more similarities just with sort of like that so many of her films are really about the central characters are, are women who maybe at some point they're at odds, but sort of at the end of the day, they've come back together to sort of help each other. They're like truly feminist films. There's so much um, of the narrative that gets filled in with music and art direction, and there's so much about location, you know, so the location is oftentimes the a, an additional character. Anyway, so, yeah, I was working at a, an art house theater in, in central Ohio and just was, like, you know, smacked right in the center of my heart, you know, and I was like, oh, okay, I think I could do that too, and here I am. So that was back in 1992, yeah. 93, and you've kind of, in a, in a way, or we have as 90s kids, grown up with her films. And I think after seeing Gas Food Lodging, 92, and then Mi Vida Loca in 1994, and then she contributed a chapter to Four Rooms, yes. it seemed like, oh, this is someone who's just, she's going to be around. She's going to be like Quentin Tarantino and carry on making films in the center of, of indie Hollywood. And that's kind of, it's kind of what happened and it's kind of not what yeah. happened. Do you, do you have a sense of that, that narrative? Like what happened after that? I don't know. I don't know. I, cause I felt the exact same way. You know, there was so much, um, momentum around, right. That kind of double whammy of Mi Vida Loca, which is just like an extraordinary film and four rooms, which very coincidentally, when we were just at South by Southwest, the filmmakers, um, lunch was at Robert Rodriguez's big, his big studio where they shot Sin City and all of this, you no know, way. and he brought up, he brought up four rooms, which was a really, which was very interesting, you know, what did he say? He said that he thought it was a disaster. 
that he thought like that he that anthology films like never do very well mm. but that he learned from that failure and that he actually thought that the then the subsequent is it like Grindhouse or something that's, that's actually also sort of an anthology, but that he thought he could do it and do it in a better way. But then he also um, was inspired to make Spy Kids, which was, you know, like his bread and butter, basically, you know? Anyway, so, I mean, I went to see, I was not a big Tarantino fan. I was not a big Robert Rodriguez fan, even though I really loved El Mariachi and sort of like the provenance of that film. But I went to go see Four Rooms because of, you know, because of Alison Anderson. So I really was like, great, she's really going to be, she's just going to like rise to the, to the top and we'll have this um, amazing sustained role model. And I don't know what happened, but I, but I, but like right now, what I feel all the time is what could have been the case. And I don't know this, but it, you know, I see, I see so many examples of like a male filmmaker takes a film to Sundance, to South by Southwest, to Berlinale, and maybe it gets, it's like a mediocre film, you know, it's good enough for those festivals, but um, maybe it doesn't even do that well. And the distance and sort of like the budget, you know, kind of like between that, that film and then like when that male director makes another film, you know, like the budget quadruples, it's maybe a year and he's made another film, you know, with studio support, etc. And... I mean, this is still the case. And then women will make a film that wins awards that can. It's nominated for an Academy Award. I'm thinking about somebody like um, Deborah Granick, who made Winter's Bone. Basically, she discovered Jennifer Lawrence and couldn't get a second film made easily. And then she eventually eventually made a very small documentary, you know, um, for, for much less money. I mean, even someone like Miranda July, who had huge success with Me and You and Everyone We Know. And it was a German... A production company that came in and helped her make her second feature, you know? So, um, there's a weird trust gap, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't know how, how else to explain it, you know? So, I don't know. I think that even sort of her becoming kind of in that in that sort of clique of boys, you know, could have been something that she was like, okay, my, I'm going down this road and maybe actually that's not where I want to go. And so, there could have been a very thoughtful focused kind of pullback on on her part you know or it could have been the case that there were studios that were like yeah we're going to help Alison Anders make another film but we're going to dictate what it is and she was like forget about it mm-hmm. you know I mean this is all speculation but mm-hmm. I feel like it's realistic mm-hmm. speculation you know because I do feel like we still live in terms of uh, the filmmaking world you know it's it's a uh, it's there's the there's a wicked gender gap and it's like an uphill journey both ways in bare feet in the snow kind of a thing you know <laughs> That puts uh, the line about Ginger Rogers going backwards in high heels into perspective, right? Yeah. And it was I was rewatching the missing ingredient, her section of of Four Rooms oh. this month, and I was like, oh, the Love Witch finally caught up. You know, it's I feel like in some ways we're finally like when I was watching your film, which is in Flair tomorrow night, closing film signature move. It's like oh, we're finally catching up to what happened in the nineties mm-hmm. when there was this explosion of of women directors and Alison Anders was one of the first and Mi Vida Loca was a, a huge success and we should say you know this was a filmmaker who showed films not only at Sundance but at Cannes yep. at Berlin she won Independent Spirit Awards she won a Peabody Award for Things Behind the Sun and she won a MacArthur Genius yep. Grant I think she was one of the first filmmakers to do so and then she moved into television with four episodes of Sex in the City and 
all that that talk is all about the men who did that. We never talk about all the women who set up Sex in the City, set the tone, Six Feet Under, The L Word, all these shows hired tons of women. Nicole Holofsena got her start on them. So it's like a career of the times, isn't it? You know, this burst of indie filmmaking in the 90s when it's like the Miramax era, then she moves into TV, and now she's... She runs a film festival with her daughter, mm-hmm. a music and film festival. Do you know if she's working on anything now? Or... I don't. I don't know what she's working on. And I tried to do some, you know, I, I was this week really, you know, in between all sorts of other things, kind of like just doing some searches to sort mm-hmm. of like figure out, yeah, what she's up to. And, I, and I'm sure she's busy, you mm-hmm. know? Like, I just feel like she has just because she hasn't directed a film a, a year, you know, or she hasn't sort of does it doesn't mean that I mean, she still she still seems like she's really busy and truly kind of following her heart in terms of the projects that she's doing like this like the music and film festival so i'm not sure i don't know what she's up to but i think that you know just bringing up television i do feel like television right now is is sort of exploded with women you know i feel like that's actually the place where there's a lot of women who are who have decided to um reject the standard totally bypass the system and develop their own shows, you know, and I have to think that those, you know, like Transparent or Orange is the New Black, etc., are just as popular over here mm-hmm. as they are in the States. Or, you know, Jane Campion's Top of the Lake, you know, I mean, there's like been some, um, like these, <laughs> or um, Olive Kittredge, I mean, there's like these women who are, who mm. have found their voice in, in television, and it's pretty remarkable, I mean, television is right now probably the, the place where there's some of the best writing, and the, and the most ambition, but for sure, if we look back at Sex and the City and, and The L Word in particular, you know, those two films about women, about sexuality, about sort of women with agency and knowing that, yeah, Alison Andrews was like right in there from the beginning, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, she is a real kind of trailblazer, you know, and sort of, and, and kind of in front of the zeitgeist in a way, you know what I'm saying? So whatever she's doing right now, it's probably, again, before the zeitgeist, we won't know that it's super amazing until after the fact. I was really thinking that when I was rewatching Sugartown, which mm-hmm. he made the same year she was working on Sex in the City. So Sugartown, the second in her trilogy of films about musicians in Southern California, stars some uh, classic British musicians, John Taylor, and uh, also Martin Kemp, mm-hmm. uh, along with Rosanna Arquette. So a lot of 80s classics. Mm-hmm. And I was watching it. There's so many storylines in it, all these interweaving storylines around this super group of old English rock stars who uh, can't keep it in their pants thinking this is this is TV this would be such a great TV series and you know now we've got vinyl and the get down I would love to see a TV series based on that she took like Grace of My Heart or Sugartown and and made a serial right yeah, the thing I love about Sugartown is it's also, like, real soapy. There's so much good melodrama. You're thinking about Ali Sheedy's character. Oh, my gosh. And so Sugartown was made a year after High Art was made, you know? And those are two... I mean, she sort of looks similar. She's still kind of, like, wiry with her kind of short hair. But two totally different, you know, characters. And I'm really... I mean, I'm sort of obsessed with Ali Sheedy also. And kind of um, Rosanna Arquette, who's also, you know, sort of gone gone missing, you know? She's, she was very outspoken about it when she made yep. a documentary mm-hmm. about That's what right. happens yep. for women yep. over 40. And one of the great things about Sugartown is it is about there's a sort of young ingenue coming up, but she's yeah. terrible. 
right. <laughs> and it's you're really inspired by the characters played by sure. Ali Sheedy and Ro- Rosanna Arquette yeah. and the the sort of poor pregnant barefoot. Oh my gosh! So and there's so yeah, there's so the women in that film are really inter- are so complicated. I mean, there's like these really great um, male supports, but it's also still really the the sort of juiciest roles are I think among the mm. the women. You know, yeah. I mean, the first thing that when we the, the way that we're introduced to Rosanna Arquette's um, character is when she gets so pissed because she's being cast to play um, Katrina Ricci's mother. You know, <laughs> and so like right off the bat, you know, the way and I also really love the way that this is a little this is a, a more general comment, but the way that rewatching some Anders films this past week, she always starts with a voiceover. You know, there's always these like it. Do, it doesn't sustain itself. It's not like there's a narrative the whole way. But we're introduced to a character through her voice, kind of explaining very lyrically and poetically what her conditions are. You know, it happened in in all of them, and she uses a lot of that. Like in gas food lodging, there's the the running sort of subplot of the Mexican actress, mm-hmm. and there's some of this that reappears in Mi Vida Loca with like the kind of telenovela, and certainly the way that that she's even directing in television you know stuff that she didn't write but she's got like these connecting threads between her films which I feel like I've done a lot too and it's Mm. a little bit about like maybe you're not done like like there's like an ellipses in a in a film that that gets kind of answered in another film even if they're two different time periods Mm -hmm. two different you know very different environments completely different characters so I think that you know there are so many male directors who are considered auteurs, you know, and I think that she is as well in a, in a, in a really subtle way. I don't know that she would, I mean, the Beaches remake, you know, you wouldn't have sort of thought like, oh, that's totally Alison Anders, you know, but if you sort of look at all of that, you know, all at once, like there, there are these like really beautiful, very strong threads that tie all of her films together. She definitely has a thing for edgelands. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, as, as someone who comes from the Midwest, where they're looking at the, the beaches, the kind of the western edges um, in her films, New Mexico, Southern California, and then also Things Behind the Sun, which she shot in Florida. That's something that sort of really struck you or appealed to you, but she very much deals with these, the kind of the edge of the world where things fall into the sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, that's why I love that the environments, the locations, the landscapes are are another character. You know, it's a quiet it's a quiet character, but it's a very present character. I mean, I've never heard her talk about this, but for me it is a little bit about the um at the edgeness of um sort of femininity or female womanhood because mm-hmm. I feel like she also even though I th- I definitely think that she's a feminist filmmaker, you know, her characters are really her her female characters are very feminine, you know? And oftentimes are doing some of that kind of um, typical stuff, which in another film could be really annoying, sort of trying to get the guy or, you know, trying to lose the guy or, you know, like making bad decisions, getting pregnant too soon. And I think that that's a really, that's such a hard kind of film to to get right, I think, you know, from a from a feminist perspective. So I do sort of feel like these the way that she uses these environments that you're absolutely right. They're like really just sort of like on the edge and kind of um forgotten and ignored or at least they don't have agency. Let's mm-hmm. say like that's a weird thing to say maybe about an environment. But I also think that she's saying too that Trudy for instance in Gas Food Lodging like a kind of boy crazy 
teenage girl who hates her mother, that character could easily go awry, you know, but she's also really saying sort of like, pay attention to this person and um, her, her wants and desires are valid and mm-hmm. she has agency in, in that even she has agency in her mistakes and that's okay. So that's what I also really love about, about the films that she has made and why I think it's important to sort of like think about them now, you know, or thinking even about the girls in Mi Vida Loca, you know, who are fighting over a boy or making these really bad decisions based on the sort of men in their life. And I think in the hands of another director and maybe even a male director, like those would just be super annoying films that I would show to my students as as examples of like what not to do, you know, because I think that right now, especially, I mean, you know, signature move kind of hits all of these points, right? It's sort of like, it's queer women, it's brown women, all the leads are, you know, women of color, Muslim women, you know, I screened one of my one of my films to a group of students recently, A Million Miles Away, which you've seen, and I got this very academic critique about how they were, it was so sort of heteronormative, you know, and it felt like a very, you know, 2017 thing to have to defend girl, like teenage girls who, who were wearing makeup or something, you know what I mean, or who were just kind of like actualizing, you know, their, their gender or their femininity or something like this, you know? So, yeah, so it was really great to, to look back at, 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 um, at these films that were made in the nineties and really Mm. think about them as a, from a feminist perspective and think about femininity, you know? She absolutely nails something about 92 in Gas Food Lodging, doesn't she? Just, maybe it's just because it's frisable, but that edge of femininity that was very witchy and gothy, and as you say, is so excessive. And she really, like, Shade makes a terrible mistake in that film and going off to Darius, but you love her so much and you love him so much. And I think that was probably the first representation that I'd seen on film of kind of having a gay best friend and what it meant to negotiate that sexuality and to realize that actually it's the boy you haven't paid attention to. Um, and that might mean cultural negotiation as well because he's Chicano and he has a deaf mother. Like we, you know, you're saying that critique is so 2017, but you look back at gas food lodging and it's totally intersectional. Oh, absolutely. It's thinking about class, race. A lot of her films are about the border and, yep. and migration and, um, that's kind of, that's extraordinary and but packing it into these into these narrative dramas yeah and not and also not being afraid i mean i i had such envy for ioni sky's hair you know in gas food lodging in those little kind of flowery dresses yeah. and all of, you know and the kind of boots and her leather jacket, like everything is so... She dre- She's dressed like Star in Lost Boys, but she makes oh. slightly less bad decisions. Correct. Yeah. Oh no, it was, it was really, you know, it was like, that's so, that's so special. And I think that that's also, I mean, I, you know, just on the flight over, I re I rewatched Mi Vida Loca. And I remember telling a student of mine just a couple of years ago, who is um, a Mexican filmmaker, a young woman who was making a similar kind of you know, girl gangs kind of get in trouble, wild Chicana girls. And I said, oh, you've got to see Mi Vida Loca, you know, and she really loved it, you know, and, and I hadn't, and, and I hadn't seen it for, I don't know, maybe five years or something like that. I mean, it's, it's accurate to that group of young women, you know, the kind of the wardrobe and makeup, but it's, it, that's also a huge part of the narrative of that film, you know, is like these girls, their, you know, their lipstick, their eyeliner, their shirts, their, you know, their mm. hair and, and their nails, you know, it's like, I, I just appreciate so much her, yeah, her aesthetic that 
art direction, locations, what she's pointing the camera towards in terms of landscapes, how all of that stuff fills in some of the narrative. One thing that really struck me rewatching Mi Vida Loca and thinking about your films as well is that often the teenagers are much more capable and resilient than the adults. The adults, like the mum in Gas Food Lodging, um, I think the only film where that's reversed is in Things Behind the Sun, but in the flashbacks in Things Behind the Sun, there are no adults around. Like the kids are having to totally fend for themselves in these working class neighborhoods. And it seems like it's a real class based story. Parents are out to work or families have been frag- fragmented in different ways. And there, it, these films are about these heartbreaking kids who have to fend for themselves. And so in Mi Vida Loca, what, what could have been melodrama becomes, as you say, they're doing the best they can. These are survival strategies. Yeah, and in that film in particular, you know, there's lots of sort of ethical dilemmas. You know, she really puts her characters into these kind of ethical situations with no judgment. I think that the we, meaning that the audience is not asked to decide, you know, I mean, we're along the journey with them. You know, we really are like with the protagonists. While, while they're making these bad decisions, but we're still rooting for them, you know, even though... So different from kids. Yeah, oh my gosh. And I just rewatched Kids recently. I mean, I'm getting ready to shoot um, a film that I wrote and will direct this summer that's a, you know, sort of a teen noir, you know? So I've been, like, going back and watching um, lots of teen films, although I was a juror at the Berlinale for their... Um, their 14-plus section, their youth section, and I watched 16 feature films, all four or about teenagers. Wow. And that was really eye-opening in terms of watching so many kind of cliches unfold about teen life. So I learned a lot. Anyway, but I but I also rewatched Kids and it's the yeah, where kids you're just left with like a like a stomach ache at the end of that film. I mean, not in a bad way necessarily. It's a very affecting film, but maybe the Lucas book ended with another kind of voiceover um, about the two, you know, I don't want all these guns around my children and I want a better life for my child. And and it's not, it doesn't do, it's not like this kind of moral, like little bow that gets tied up at the end of that film. But there's, there's like the hope that you need for these girls, you know, because you're just kind of rooting for them the whole time and still rooting for them, but not like a middle upper class gringo sort of way where you're like, well, just move out of Echo Park, you know, and you know, where you're still sort of like, yeah, girl, hold on to your culture, you know, but you don't have to, you know, your son doesn't have to go to jail, you know, or I don't know. And it's, yeah, so the sort of like the ethics are really great. And I love the in in Sugartown, you know, that those are all adults except for when the, the kid arrives, you know, who's also like a really interesting kind of fissure in that whole thing. But I love Don't it. call me Nirvana. Oh my God, I love it. I love it. <laughs> That kid was so, like, super compelling, you know? And it's... And, it and I think it was actually Patricia Arquette's son or nephew that mm-hmm. he is a relation. Mm-hmm. So they have this amazing yeah. natural chemistry. Yeah. And that whole film, I mean, what I loved about that film is not only are the musicians actual, you know, musicians, um, but, like, the pregnant woman is really pregnant. And, I mean, that's why I was like, oh, God, this is so kind of soapy in a really great way because there's so much kind of real-life mm-hmm. stuff that's in there, you know, or the kind of the girls who play the... John Doe's children or, you know, at least in the IMDb credits seem to be all related to each other, you know, it's like an actual family. So anyway, I thought that was really cool because I, because I appreciate that too. And I think that 
that I love how Alison Andrews is also, she's worked with a lot of the same actors. She's, you know, like written and directed with her partner. People get thanked over and over again. And I think that that's also, I don't know that that's a female thing, but I do feel like I've done it because I sort of find, I've, I find my team. I find the people who I trust. You know, there's no mansplaining on set ever, you know, even by me. And so it's like, I, I love that she's really, I mean, that goes back to kind of her auteurness in a way. It's related to that, like the threads that kind of connect all her films together, you know, that I think that she's found people that she's, that she wants to work with kind of over and over again. And that, that relationship seems like a safe one. There's trust there. There's, you know, creativity, obviously, you know, so I appreciate that. And that's something that I don't think that I had realized until sort of like watching a bunch of stuff in a big cluster. Mm -hmm. And the, the film that probably stands out from that. Um, which I think was her biggest budget film, is Grace of My mm-hmm. Heart, um, which has a cast including Ileana Douglas mm-hmm. in a, the leading role she was always meant to play, right. and the wonderful John Turturro, mm-hmm. and is a period drama, mm-hmm. but is very much about the music industry, and she yeah. worked with her regular music producer to create pastiches of 60s, mm-hmm. wonderful pastiches of 60s music. It is my go-to Sunday afternoon <laughs> film. You know, that's mm-hmm. when I'm feeling down, Grace of My Heart is the film I want to watch. I think it's magical. I don't understand why that's not in the Criterion Collection when Border Radio, which is also a great film, is. And that was, I'm just checking, that was 96. And again, that felt like we're going to have these stories about women's history that again you know it's kind of based on carol king's story Mm -hmm. and we're now starting to see like d reese's film about um bessie i'm interested like is grace of my heart a film that you saw when it came out and what kind of reputation does it have in the u.s if at all it's a it's a tiny film i mean it's something that i had actually not i mean i'd seen it a long time ago maybe on a kind of sunday afternoon sort of cable you know but it's not something that i that i sought out at the time that it was released. And I feel like it doesn't have the same cachet or resonance as the two prior. And maybe because it is um, a period film, it's a, there's lots of music in it. It's a a more polished film even, you know, sort of like higher Mm -hmm. production value, you know, it's, it was a big film. And so, but it doesn't have the same following, Mm -hmm. you know, and I love films that are kind of, fact kind of fiction. I love the sort of the real life provenance of Carol King in particular, you know, that was, I have an older sister and that was, oh my gosh, just all of that tapestry was just blasting from her room. And I didn't, you know, when I was a kid, I was just like, uh, this again. But of course, like I've, you know, I, I rediscovered it again, like, you know, even in my twenties or something like that. And I did the same thing, blasted it over and over again. But again, it's like a, you know, a female protagonist, a female driven film. And, but it didn't, it doesn't have the same sort of resonance that the other two do in the States in terms of sort of like when you think about who she is or in those kind of conversations or around great, you know, kind of indie directors. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure why even. Why has Ileana Douglas never had another oh lead my, role? I, she, I love her so much. You know, she as an actress, I just, I've loved, she's so truly captivating in front of the camera, mm. you know? But it's, yeah, it's, it's again, it's like we're in a situation where it's also, I mean, it's really true, right? Like, I think that there are women who, who right now, if you're like 20, you can play 
characters up until you're, you know, the, or 50, you know? And then if you are Dame Judi Dench or, you know, like Helen Mirren, you're sort of like revered and loved. But all the sort of women in between who are genuinely in their, you know, 40s and 50s and 60s, like, where are their roles? Yeah. And where is Ileana Douglas? There's a scene in Sugar Town that almost um, prefigures that um, Amy Schumer's last fuckable day oh, yeah. sketch where Rosanna yeah. Arquette and Ali Sheedy are getting into it and you just realize how rare it is to see i mean it's not even just like the bechdel test fest but two women actually talking about an employment problem that faces women and they're so funny yeah about it right yeah thinking back and like why wasn't that didn't become like a, a great tv series you know is beyond me it's not too late it's not too late. We get all those people back together. You could collaborate on it. I know. It, I know. Ali Sheedy is learning martial arts oh, at the end, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's our plan post podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, Allison, if you're listening, we've got some ideas. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sugar Town, the this, this series. Well, that was a fantastic chat. It was very weird listening to a hyphenate filmmaker chat that I wasn't involved in. Uh, that's a first in seven years, but um, I loved it. I That was so interesting. And I loved your point about her setting these, these films in borderlands, you know, right at the edge of the world. I think that's absolutely spot on. She does like people living on the edge. I have to say my own reaction to, to Anders, you know, in the 90s, I, you know, for film nerds, the internet was a revelation and before... Netflix back when like a megabyte was an impossibly large measurement of data we would painstakingly download trailers like downloading films wasn't even <laughs> a consideration it was just trailers and marvel at the fact that you could watch a video on a computer and basically we just rewatch trailers over and over again and there were some from the 90s that I can basically do off by heart and the four rooms trailer is one of them <laughs> so when the voiceover guy lists the directors in a new film from directors Alison Anders Alexander Rockwell Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino. Four rooms. Alison Anders became lodged in my head as one of the voices of 1990s indie film. And for ages I'd hear, you know, Tarantino, I'd hear Rodriguez, you know, these names. You know, I always wondered what had happened to Alison Anders. I think, you know, you can sort of see that career trajectory watching them all in order. You know, that's one of the benefits of, of hyphenates. If you watch all the films in order, you sort of see, you wonder how the hell someone can end up you know, start off being one of the voices of indie film and then be directing TV movies. But you sort of see, I guess, the world changes where the types of films that were big in the 90s no longer... You know, the way we saw a whole bunch of lawyer films in the 90s and then David E. Kelly made some lawyer TV shows and no one wanted to go to lawyer films anymore. You know, the world sort of changes and... I think the films that Alison Anders was interested in sort of became the domain of television. I think that's totally right. I think the idea of the ensemble cast, the unfolding of stories that are affective, that you ha- you take your time with. Um, mm. So I'm thinking about the opening of Things Behind the Sun, which is her, you know, one of her last feature films made in 2001, where for the first half hour you don't really know what the connection is between these two protagonists that Mm. you're seeing completely separately their characters are being built up via sex scenes and you can totally imagine that that would happen now on an hbo show or a netflix show and people would think it was revelatory and bold but if you tried to do that even in an indie drama your writer's lab at sundance would be saying no 
I need, you know, a smash start where I find out who the characters are, what their crises are. They need to be in a fight. No one's going to take their time with this. This wouldn't work on the festival circuit. It's too slow. So, mm. yeah, I think that's absolutely right that television became where we go to take our time. And, and she's a filmmaker who who likes time. She likes edges. She likes difficult people. She likes difficult women. It's weird thinking about her as someone who did Sex in the City because even though she's setting her films in LA and New York quite a lot of the time or just outside Miami, they don't look like the glossy cities we expect from TV. Yeah. Like her New York in Grace of My Heart is somewhere that people work hard, they fail, they experience racism, they experience betrayal, you know, and her, the LA in Sugartown. Similarly, it's all set out in Topanga Canyon, this sort of wild, overgrown place where people, it really is it, on the edge. And um, I think that's a real loss from cinema. I don't know maybe yeah. if films like Moonlight and Certain Women and a film that I just saw at Flair called Heartland, which was made in Oklahoma for $150,000, is amazing, will mark <laughs> a kind of return, you know, of the kind of slow cinema we associate with non-anglophone filmmaking nations, telling stories of poorer people, people whose lives aren't all worked out but aren't just like cool hot messes. And, and that's obviously, you know, I, I, it seems like the world she's grown up in because it seems so personal and she does put so much of herself in the f films. I mean, Things Behind the Sun is autobiographical to the extent that, are we going to mention this? It's uh, Yeah, it's on the record. Yeah, she filmed the rape scene in the house she herself was raped in. I mean, I, I, I wish I didn't know that fact watching the film because I think it made it so much harder to watch, but it was so... I mean, she tapped into something there. There is a scene between Kim Dickens and Elizabeth Pena that might be the best thing she's ever directed. It's this moment between them. It's electrifying. Um, and, and I think it's because it comes from a, a very deep place. You know, she's not making assumptions about what these characters are feeling. She knows exactly what they're feeling. And there's a truth there that is, uh, is quite raw. Um, so, you know, I feel exhausted even thinking about that. <laughs> I get quite... That film is is completely incredible. Like, there's a 25th anniversary screening uh, of Gas Food Lodging tonight in London, which has made me serving to make me feel completely old. Like, how am I older than 25? I've watched <laughs> that film so many times. I have it. I taped it off the TV on VHS. I've been through several DVD copies. You know, I probably I feel like I know bits of that film off by heart, visual mm. sound, you know, women respond to bass. It was such an important film for telling a fresh story, as was Mi Vida Loca. But something about Things Behind the Sun, which was a film that it had, you know, met a standing ovation at Sundance, it did great on the festival circuit, and then completely disappeared as the world went into, you know, historical chaos in late mm. 2001 because of the long reach of American politics. That disappeared, even as it was speaking about exactly the same things that came out of that moment. Um, hyper-masculine aggression, the hyper-sexualization of women, women as survivors and what's needed of that. The, the ethical responsibility of journalists becomes a subject of the film. The emergence of personal journalism, like she identifies that before anyone is writing think pieces about it. And so the film tells the story of a musical journalist, music journalist, musical journalist, oh, that's who <laughs> sings their journalism, uh, who writes for this tiny sort of hipster magazine played by Gabriel Mann, who is in high art. And um, he hears about this 
singer who's making waves on college radio with a, a song that she has said is about her experience of being raped um in which she says she didn't know the names of the men who raped her and he has this realization that he knows something about the story he knows who her mm. rapists were and he goes back to the town where he grew up and the singer grew up uh who's played by the unfucking believable kim dickens like just all the kudos i am obsessed with her anyway and deadwood and tremaine so this just i'm super <laughs> yeah, obsessed yeah. with her now and her amazing like late 90s mullets he goes back to to try and tell the story and you think it's really going to be his journey and it's going to be about him forgiving himself for his role in what happened and there's a scene between them on the end of the pier where every assumption you have about like easy storytelling and about response the responsibility for forgiveness and women's emotional labor is just flung in the sea and then it's mm. followed by that uh, incredible scene with elizabeth pena where kim dickens character then goes and takes responsibility for the other the lives that she's disrupted so elizabeth yeah. pena now lives in the house where she was raped and she's shown up there drunk and disorderly and scared pena pena's character and her children a number of times so this kind of cascade of taking mm. responsibility the very thing that the u.s was unable to do in 2001 <laughs> I, yeah, this this film has. It's just like I want to talk about it. I want to write about it. I want to have screenings of it. I want to. Mm. I don't know. It's just kind of recaptured me. It's it's amazing. And uh, you mentioned Nicole Holofcener uh, in in your chat with Jen. Um, you know she cameos in one of her films. No, wait, what? In Mavita Loca, I will. Uh, it's going to be in the show notes. I've taken a <laughs> screenshot. There's some weird cameos, like yeah, Salma um, Hayek, right? One of her first roles. Yeah, and Jason Lee and Spike Jones turn up as drug dealers in that film. Like, there are weird cameos all over her, her films. And I think, yeah, this interesting interconnection of, of up-and-coming filmmakers of that era. She was one of the Sundance crew, like, before Sundance became this sort of global right sales to Netflix <laughs> festival, you know, before it had the writer's labs and the director's labs. I, there was, you know, Ruby Rich writes about this um, in uh, her writing about new queer cinema. It was somewhere that these young American filmmakers were going to show their films to each other and to the critics who were going to sort of look after that work. And, you know, Alison Anders wasn't the only women in that generation. There were queer filmmakers like Maria Magenti and Nisha Ganatra, who some people will go, oh wait, she co-directed the first season of Transparent. Um, but Anders made the largest number of features of that period, in fact starting in 87 with, with Border Radio. And mm. her disappearance for me is kind of, well not disappearance, because she's been working steadily, right, on successful shows. Yeah. But from theatrically released feature filmmaking, yeah. it's kind of brutal. Mm. And the fact that, I think, as I was saying to Jen, she never gets talked about in terms of the TV auteurs who are making TV great again, when mm. actually she was right in there at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we should just reconvene Hellas for Hyphenates every month as the Alison Anders Film Club and the Jennifer Reedy Film canon. Club. Get her name back in the canon of you know, influential 90s filmmakers. And influential continuing filmmakers. Like, I want to see, you know, if someone gave her that budget and brought her in with some some young actors. She's really great at working with young actors and discovering talent. You know, what what could happen? But as it is, like, she still has half of Greta Garbo's record collection, to, which she bought at auction with her Sex and the City residuals. And she writes a blog about listening through them called Greta's Records. And she is, like 
living her life. She runs a film festival with her daughter, Tiffany, who's also a filmmaker, and, like, salute to her. Definitely. Well, yes, if you're listening, Jen, thank you so much for joining us, and we will see the rest of you next month. Bye.